This season of Invisible Capital is brought to you by Upwork, the world's work marketplace, where you can help your investments launch growth through the power of workforce transformation. With Upwork, your portfolio companies can tap into the on-demand talent they need to improve operational efficiencies from the ground up. Because without effective execution, strategy only gets you so far. Stay tuned after today's interview to hear more from our community on the latest innovations driving growth for private equity decision makers and portfolio companies alike. Upwork helps millions of businesses transform their talent strategies with independent talent around the globe. Learn more at upwork.com slash pitchbook. I think the term ESG and sustainability are broadly used, interchanged with a lot of different aspects. I think there are many things in sustainability that are politicized. And of course, those can create challenges and be skewed. What ESG is not at Sustainalytics and what ESG is not in the, the financial industry, it is not a scorecard or a subjective scorecard. Hello, and welcome back to Invisible Capital, a podcast on the private markets. I'm Alexander Davis, Editor-in-Chief of PitchBook News. In this week's episode, PitchBook lead analyst Hilary Wick interviews Tom Eveson of Sustainalytics to discuss what ESG considerations should be top of mind for PE firms. But first, let's welcome in Ryan Preet, a PitchBook News reporter covering private equity. And Ryan's going to share some insights from his recent reporting on how quite a number of PE firms have been getting into the sustainable investing arena. Welcome, Ryan. Thanks, Alex. Good to be here. All right, Ryan. Well, let's turn to some fresh news about this topic. Gary Gensler, the chairman of the Securities and Exchange Commission, just came out recently with a new report and a new statement that showed that he and the SEC are going to be paying a lot more attention to ESG investing and how private firms approach this subject. So what's he talking about and why is he calling attention to it right now? Yeah. So Gary Gensler posted this video on Twitter earlier this week about wanting to kind of hone in and measure and verify how funds are using ESG to keep it more than just a buzzword or kind of a, you know, a sticker that can be slapped onto a fund to boost their marketing strategy. And talk a little bit about what his what what he might be thinking of, uh, where where he might go from here, um, and and whether we should expect some kind of regulatory standards from the SEC on this matter. So it sounds like he is suggesting that his team might be working towards putting out some more concrete guidelines on how the term ESG is handled when it comes to private equity. He cited a report in his video suggesting that there are 800 registered investment companies controlling more than $3 trillion in AUM that claim that are claiming to work towards some sort of ESG goal. And, you know, he used a great metaphor in his video where he is in a grocery store shopping for fat-free milk. And he says, you know, when I'm shopping for fat-free milk, I can look at the nutrition label on the actual carton of milk and see that there's 0% fat. But when it comes to ESG investing and ESG funds that private equity firms are creating, we can't really see the ingredients listed on those funds. And so it sounds like he kind of wants to push the narrative towards 
defining what exactly an ESG fund is. And this is this is actually a difficult uh, situation for you know the whole financial system right now. For years, there has been, uh, I would say, a lack of uniformity, a lack of um, standards. Until maybe recently, there are some some emerging uh, research efforts, including here at PitchBook, Morningstar, to help investors who are considering ESG strategies uh, and considering how to allocate their capital into into those into those opportunities. You know, to bring it back to Gary Gensler. When the market is looking at what is being offered to them in terms of allocating their capital toward environmental, social, and governance concerns or making an impact in a certain uh, category like that, they don't really have a, a good, reliable way of understanding what's, what's really under the hood or what's, what's in that carton of milk. Yeah, very well said. I mean, it, currently ESG is kind of just this extremely broad firm-wide initiative. Yeah, kind of kind of fuzzy. Yeah, very fuzzy. And, you know, we, in our reporting, we've covered a number of firms that have, you know, begun to take a stab at this and the, their, their grandiose goals. Um, we reported last week on Apollo's new decarbonization platform, which essentially is planning to deploy $100 billion firm-wide to, towards ESG efforts. And, you know, this wouldn't just be private equity. This would come into play with their, their real estate businesses, their credit businesses. And while it is a huge number, it's an eye-opening number, it still remains pretty vague. It's just like this company-wide goal to unleash $100 billion by 2030 towards these ESG goals. However, there really has not been a formal roadmap made public yet. You look at other firms such as Carlisle, Carlisle Group out of Washington, D.C., they've made a promise to achieve net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050 or sooner across all their investments, which again is a forward-looking goal, but is just, it's, it's so far out from now, there hasn't really been any concrete evidence of how this is going to be handled. Um, and furthermore, you have Blackstone, which in January launched a sustainable resources credit platform, which is going to be focused on lending to renewable energy companies and to those supporting what is so-called the energy transition. I mean, each firm can uh, has the freedom right now, um, such as it is, to define these these targets and and the standards that they use however they want to within the bounds of what is you know currently resonating with with investors. And I think that um, it's to each, to each his own, how to think about these things, how to evaluate the, uh, the strategies and the, the investment mix that's being put, put out there as, as having uh, a following, I should say, ESG criteria. Every firm's criteria are going to differ. And I think the challenge for the SEC is, I mean, I don't think they have a lot of experience really um, coming in with uh, with criteria and defining uh, things like that, that's going to be a, a really really tough challenge for them. It's been hard enough for the industry to to get to where it is now, and then we're several years into that process. Yeah, exactly. And just sounds like the SEC and Gary Gensler are really just trying to get ahead of this because ESG is the whole concept of ESG is still pretty fresh, but it's evolving rapidly. 
And, you know, on, on another hand, we also have over 70 private equity firms that have signed on to this collective agreement to a collective report on emissions, workplace facilities, gender diversity within their boards and companies, and also their portfolio companies. So all of this is happening so rapidly that it sounds like Gensler is really just trying to get a grasp on all this before there are potentially aspects of greenwashing, which is when a firm will inappropriately or incorrectly list a fund or an investment as being environmentally friendly when really it's not. All right. Well, let's leave it there for now. Thanks very much, Ryan. And and just tell us before you go, what else we should be looking at in the private equity world that you're reporting on? Yeah. You know, we actually just came out of a very busy earnings season for publicly traded private equity firms. And um, a group of us at PitchBook have actually rolled out a tracking dashboard that tracks the key data analytics of publicly traded PE firms. Uh, you know, we actually just had TPG go public in January. There's news of another firm, L. Catterton, going public sometime this summer. So look for that. Um, it's going to be updated every quarter. It has a lot of great data on there. And we're looking forward to keeping that up to date and available to all of our readers. All right. Thanks, Ryan, for coming on. Looking forward to seeing more of your coverage of this particular issue uh, in the broader private equity landscape. Thanks again, Ryan Preet from PitchBook News. Thanks for having me, Alec. Looking forward to the next time I get to join you guys on here. For more news, including our recently updated Female Founders Dashboard, you can subscribe to our newsletter, The Daily Pitch. Listeners can find that link, as well as links to the articles and reports we covered today, at pitchbook.com slash podcast. After the break, we'll hear Hillary's conversation with Tom Eveson of Sustainalytics. Stay tuned to hear about innovation and private equity from Tim Sanders with Upwork. We are talking to Jody Greenstone Miller, the founder and CEO of Business Talent Group. If you think about PE as an engine in general of economic innovation, you know, back from when, you know, KKR started doing it years ago, you know, they they have innovated on financing structures, they have innovated on, you know, cost controls, they've innovated on, you know, driving M&A and platform plays. I think they really do have the potential to be the leader in innovating on talent. Um, and I think it's because they have, they have portfolio companies, so they have a big reach. They have a, um, a very clear value proposition when they make investments. They know what they want to do. And they just need to be able to implement it as well and as fast as possible. <laughs> Today, I have with me Tom Eveson of Sustainalytics, best known for its public company ESG ratings work going back 30 years. Tom, however, works in an area of the business that has been more focused on assessing ESG risks on private companies. So Tom, I think for some, the perception of people working in the ESG space is that they all came to it from a passion for trees and social justice, but you came from a much more traditional financial background. Why don't you introduce yourself and the work your team is doing? 
My background comes from the finance industry. I was both on the buy side and sell side and uh, eventually ended up here at Sustainalytics. And specifically, I lead the Americas team for corporate solutions. And that's worth noting because I, I think most people don't associate that with Sustainalytics or ESG in general. So Sustainalytics began approximately 30 years ago, and its main mandate was to look at portfolio managers, approach asset managers and say, we could give the stocks that you own, the companies in your portfolio, a certain score that's related to uh, social responsibility, SRI. And that, that goes back to the very beginning. And it was very few and far between. And it was definitely viewed as a nice to have. Let's fast forward all the way to where we are today. And obviously, sustainability, climate change, social footprints are, are becoming mainstream and part of uh, all uh, corporate and government operations. So we found that companies were increasingly asking questions about where did I get this ESG score? One of my investors brought it up and I don't know what it is. And going back about five years ago when sustainable finance bonds really took off with green social and sustainable bonds, companies, corporate issuers became more and more exposed to having a sustainable footprint. And they started to ask more questions and want to know more about their ratings and what they can do to improve their strategies and, and inputs into their ESG. So we have a corporate solutions team now that helps companies uh, understand their ESG rating. Companies are now using their ESG ratings in their marketing and investor communications. So we are there to help them with that. And then, of course, the sustainable finance where they need their um, bonds and issuances uh, reviewed by a third party to align with sustainable guidelines in the market. We uh, offer that for companies as well as a verification service. So my team here in the Americas is responsible to corporates, issuers, the investment banks and private equity firms that interact with those uh, issuers directly. And uh, our services are, are there to help. But you don't hate trees. No, I love trees as well. Uh, no, absolutely. So PitchBook has run a sustainable investment survey in each of the past two years. Uh, both times, there were a handful of respondents who provided angry, open-ended responses about the subject of the survey. To quote one from last year, quote, I'm only interested in returns. ESG is a political issue, one that promises to destroy portfolios, end quote. For those who still haven't taken the time to understand ESG, what are the top reasons why asset managers and their portfolio companies should care about ESG and sustainability? Well, first of all, I, I certainly understand some of that perspectives. I think the term ESG and sustainability are broadly used, interchanged with a lot of different aspects. I think there are many things in sustainability that are politicized. And of course, those can create challenges and be skewed. What ESG is not at Sustainalytics and what ESG is not in the, the financial industry, it is not a scorecard or a subjective scorecard as uh, about the level of good corporate citizenship um, that you have. I think a lot of people equate ESG, the, the acronym, and when they read about it in the press with people judging the morality of, a, of business ethics and the management of a company and what that company does. I'm not suggesting that that doesn't play into good governance and, and good social responsibility, et cetera. But what I do want to clarify is a company can have the most magnificent sustainability report that you've ever seen. 
and still come up short on an ESG rating. ESG ratings are taking material ESG issues that a company in its sector uh, might face, whether it's environmental because of the type of business that that company is involved in, its operations, um, depending what it's exposed to. Uh, Fossil fuels is what everyone assumes is the main category uh, or enemy of ESG because it's uh, obviously involved in high carbon industry. But that's just not the case in most ESG ratings. Social, I think people equate that with a lot of charitable giving and a lot of diversity in your hiring. And that's just a tiny part of it. And then G, obviously, governance. I would ask everyone to take an obvious assessment of what's been going on in the world over the last 20, 30 years. And transparency is here to stay and will only increase I've been watching regulations and reporting requirements escalate over the last few decades on the financial side, long before ESG was even an acronym that everybody would use. Uh, When Sustainalytics started and when I was on the early mutual fund days, it was called SRI, Socially Responsible Investing. And uh, even at that time, the reporting requirements and transparency for asset managers on money laundering and all sorts of these types of regulations and transparency and tracking were increasing on a daily, weekly, monthly, yearly basis. And it's just a norm of the business. And we have Twitter now, we have social media. So things that would have happened outside of people's view are now happening clearly in real time for all to see. And I think we just need to accept that running a business, regardless of its size, regardless of its industry, needs to account for how you treat the world around you, how you treat people that you work with and your clients, and and how you treat the capital structures and the equity and the the governance and oversight that you have on that. I don't think anyone's going to argue that that's a bad idea. And if we separate that from any sort of politicized part, having a company that manages its exposures to environmental issues takes into consideration the social impacts of what it does or how it manages people or operates within a community. I can't see people thinking that that's a bad idea. And governance, people lose their jobs for not taking this seriously anymore, no matter how high profile you are. So I think it's important to isolate ESG as material factors that are environmental, social, and governance related. And I think it's in everyone's best interest to take those seriously. And at least take them into consideration when building your operation. So I'll, I'll stop there. Your response there was just great in laying out the E, the S, and the G, and that it's not just about carbon, for example. But one of the things we talked about in, our, in a prior conversation was some really practical implications of if you do ignore this, you may not get money from a variety of sources. Can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. And I'll say that even coming to... Sustainalytics relatively recently, even I was uh, surprised to see how material of an impact ESG or sustainability was having within the capital markets industry. I too admittedly came to Sustainalytics understanding that people wanted to see diversity and, and that there were definitely issues with fossil fuel and carbon footprints, emissions, pollution, I think was straightforward for most people. But I I was not yet aware of how quickly this was affecting the access to capital and the cost of capital in real transactions. And, And I find that fascinating. You have 
the large nation-leading banks or global banks that are all adopting through public pressure, through internal political will and regulation to adopt sustainability frameworks into their activities and financings. And I would say not quite yet, certainly not in North America, but in Europe, it is getting increasingly hard to finance construction or buildings or real estate that will not be designated green or affordable housing. And the alternatives to raising that capital or raising that debt are going to become more expensive, not because of a political issue. Maybe that's where it once started, but the real items is they can't have that on their books. If this is not going to be a LEED certified building or um, have a very uh, clear path to transition and improvement, it will not be eligible for financing at some institutions. And that started as a nice to have or, or a very focused sustainable strategy maybe five years ago, and now it's becoming mainstream. So I've seen debt issuances out there on the market where non-sustainably mandated investors on the institutional side have said, I like your bond, I like this issuance, but the, the ESG risk is too high based on whether it's a sustainalytics rating or someone else's or, or another metric, and I can't own your bond. Um, so what I would relate this to or compare this to is uh, credit ratings. And I'm aware there's a big difference between the two. I'm, I'm aware that one is uh, financially driven and regulated and ESG is still a methodology that is not re- unregulated. But I would point out that at the beginning, uh, certainly in the mutual fund rating world, when there weren't that many institutional portfolio managers and there were only a few hundred mutual funds in the market, I remember fixed income asset managers that as that industry ballooned could reference a a credit rating and say, uh, as far as their uh, methodology for for managing a fund was to say, I only buy a certain level of credit rating or above. And in its infancy, that was enough. Obviously, today, no credible institutional asset manager would buy bonds strictly on a third-party credit rating and leave it at that. It would be an indication. It would be a baseline. It would be a threshold that is just a given. I can only buy investment grade and that's it. But then obviously there's a ton of work that goes in after that. I see ESG ratings, regardless of of the provider, slowly moving into that category. It's not an end-all, be-it-all. It doesn't answer all questions. It's not a, a globally recognized, standardized methodology that everyone uses But there are certainly a lot of common approaches to what ESG is, and it's becoming a threshold or a baseline. There are some companies and asset managers, investors that have huge sustainability teams gathering metrics on impact and sustainability to to monitor their investments and other asset management teams that have only a few people and are are being asked to take this into account and, and their immediate default or their first line of filtering will be ESG ratings, whether it's a combined methodology using a few providers or or a single use, that that would be where most people are starting and moving on from there. So I hope that uh, gets that point across. Particularly in the Americas, I feel like my conversations with general partners in private equity and VC are kind of all over the map in terms of their ESG thinking. 
I feel like ESG got acceptance earlier in public companies and PE kind of said, leave us alone and let us do what we know will make us money. Are you seeing a change in that attitude from fund managers you talk with? Yes, absolutely. And I think that's general in in finance and investment industry in general. I, I think private equity by by its namesake is more private and companies are in there and they're not used to as much disclosure. I think we can all point to the news today. I mean, the SEC is also looking for more transparency and disclosure from private equity and hedge funds. Uh, as I noted earlier, I think transparency is just here to stay and will gradually increase to all aspects of our lives. And that includes capital markets. I noticed that Blackstone made an announcement recently that they will now be requiring their portfolio companies to report on ESG uh, metrics as well as uh, financial going forward. And if stakeholders care and if LPs are trying to slowly incorporate sustainable um, mandates into their approaches to their own portfolios, and that will spill over into the GPs, which will spill over into the companies they invest in. And that's happening. So whether the mandate is strong that I want to invest in green only industries or divest of assets that I think are, are no longer part of acceptable investments for certain uh, institutional or LP investors, then that's just going to trickle down. So we've seen that. And, and as I've mentioned, I'd say 60 to 70% of the work we're doing now is with private companies. And most of that is being led by the private equity firms that hold them as portfolio companies, because in the event of uh, some sort of liquidity transaction, whatever structure that might be, um, having your ESG ship in order is starting to become a prudent business strategy. So I, I would add that. I've been having a lot of conversations lately with fund managers and companies about what they can do, how they can get started on fulfilling the requests of their investors to improve their ESG profile. At the company level, where are some places to start, both actions to take and places to go for advice? There's obviously a lot of public information out there, and, and I'll only I'll reference that most people in the ESG space, as a baseline, I think the resources available through the, the various ESG rating industries are a good place to look, as in most of them offer ESG ratings publicly available that you can log on and, and view by, by each company. Obviously, deep-level data dives tend to be part of the, the business model, but ESG ratings are there to compare and see. So you can look at a company that's related to your sector or to your focus of asset management and, and see where scores are and get a brief understanding of what the different ESG ratings are based on. Um, usually it's exposure to certain risks and a company's efforts to mitigate that. So I'd say going to those uh, sites to at least understand what an ESG rating is versus what it is not is important. And uh, of course, green bond, uh, the, the bond industry, sustainable finance, a great introduction to this space or to understand how the financial industry and investors look at this is to look at the, the various um, sustainable bond principles, whether it's green, social, or sustainable, and, and you can uh, all publish by ICMA. And they're based on UN SDGs. They take into account the market practice of approaching sustainability and finance. And if you look at what those topics are and how they are defined, 
that is a fantastic start to understanding what considerations a company or an asset manager should be taking into account when formulating their strategy. When you go into a small company, for example, it's a private company, there's not going to be any public comparables to them. What areas do you sort of have as a checklist of this is really, if you are just starting your journey, here's the policies you should have in place or here, here's a good place for you to, to start. I mean, you're, you're talking about some great research ideas, but maybe some practical advice for companies um, that are just trying to start their journey. Of course. And I'll bring up again an earlier point when I said that an ESG profile or an ESG rating, as our company certainly interprets it, and I'd say in general, is not a company that spends the most resources on having the most comprehensive or extensive sustainability report. It is not about highlighting all of the good charitable giving and community programs your company is involved with. ESG is about this is what your company does by its sector. And here are the inherent risks associated with a business in this sector operating here. And these are the main key risks or material issues in the environmental part, in the social part, and in the governance part. And here are the main policies and procedures that are considered best practice to, at a reasonable level, mitigate. So hiring policies. I think any company, uh, no matter their size, whether it's a venture startup or uh, a multinational with thousands of employees, is widely aware or or very aware that hiring policies will matter. Um, And whether, depending on what region of the world you're in, diversity, whether that's gender-based, or um, ethnicity, it's a factor and you need to be aware of it. So having a policy about that and making it public, whether you are used to being a, a public company that needs to, by regulation, disclose a lot of items or whether you're a private startup, private startups will invest in a website. They will invest on how well they do what they do. That's common practice. Why wouldn't you talk about the good things you do? And I think people just need to incorporate into that the most common material issues for environmental, social, and governance. And and it ranges by sector and a company in what we consider a hard-to-abate industry, we'll call it fossil fuels, could have an overall higher ESG score, a better ESG score than a company in the tech space or consulting firm that is not into the production or use of fossil fuels because the the material ESG issues differ by sector by sector. And managing those and making sure you have good policies on them, whether you're a five-person company or a 5,000-person company, does not necessarily take a lot of resources. It's, It's accounting for them having a policy and making it clear. Those are the main things that people need to understand when they're looking at ESG. And most of our business now, as we deal with corporations, are with private companies that either have a lot of stakeholders, whether it's private equity or venture investors, and the LPs that care about what their private equity fund is involved in, or stakeholders like consumers, or there's a liquidity, a potential liquidity event far in the distance, whether they might have to issue uh, some form of market debt, or whether there might be some potential M&A, a company that spent a lot of time and effort on their acquisitions and their own ESG internal footprint doesn't want to acquire a company that's going to come with it, controversies and and a really high-risk ESG footprint. So it doesn't take resources above and beyond good management 
to have a good ESG footprint, as, at least as far as the risk ratings uh, from our perspective. Yeah, interesting. I've heard many argue, and you've just spoken a little bit about this, that startups shouldn't focus on ESG because they have a concept to prove, a fledgling business to launch, and a need to get to profitability. They don't have the time or money to focus on this, the argument goes. But perhaps the venture capitalist, the fund manager, does have that time and money. What can fund managers do to ensure that their portfolio companies are in a good place from a sustainability perspective when it comes time to exit? Thank you. That that is a very good question. So with regards to ESG and helping companies to improve, whether that is uh, companies that can afford to put a lot of resources to that internally, or whether it is a very influential stakeholder, and we see parallels in the way a large multinational in manufacturing may approach their supply chain to make sure that they are not exposed to strong ESG risks within their supply chain, especially their top tier or or most material suppliers. In the same way, we're seeing that transfer into the asset management world. And whether you are a venture capital firm or private equity, all the way up to the large uh, publicly listed asset management firms, having a say in that or encouraging your company to look for the various services that are, that are out there, to be aware of what your ESG score is, to be aware what the material issues are, and getting an overview of that or establishing a baseline and then forming a strategy to work with it. We find a lot of stakeholders are doing that on behalf of the companies that they have exposure to. So again, whether I'm an investor or whether I have a strong commercial relationship as a supplier, if the ESG risk of what a company I am a stakeholder in could affect my business, we find that they are stepping in to fill that gap. So we can support through all the different levels. And I, and I know I'm saying we as in Sustainalytics, but I would find whether it's a consulting firm or other companies out there that do similar things to Sustainalytics, we're finding that the main stakeholder will invest the time and effort to ensure that the companies that they are materially t- attached to are doing the best possible to ensure manageable uh, ESG exposure risk. Well, thank you so much, Tom, for bringing your wealth of practical knowledge to this conversation. I think ESG is not what a lot of people think it is. So it's been great to have a conversation that talks about the real risks and opportunities that ESG entails, completely separate from what many perceive to be a values issue. Tim Sanders with Upwork here, and this is our latest installment of Innovations in Private Equity. Today, we'll talk about innovations in workforce design. Whether it's an interim executive, a high-end freelance consultant, or on-demand talents, PE firms are looking for solutions to bridge skills gaps for portfolio companies at all levels. It's the key to generating value. Recently, I caught up with one of the world's leading experts in on-demand talent for PE firms, and as you are about to find out, she comes from the investment community. Let's tune into that conversation now. We are talking to Jody Greenstone-Miller, the founder and CEO of Business Talent Group, also known as BTG, and they are the leading marketplace for high-end business talent 
On Demand. Jody, welcome to the segment. Thank you, Tim. Pleasure to be here. So where did the idea for BTG come from? Well, I was actually an investor uh, at a venture capital firm, and I started to notice just how often we needed talent. And we needed it in all different shapes and sizes and in different mm-hmm. timeframes. And it was always a scramble. You know, who do we know? Pick up a phone. And I started to think, you know, there are a lot of people who like to work differently, come in quickly, do a project, move on. But there was just no yeah. efficient way to access them. And so I kind of thought about it and decided there was a new piece of human capital infrastructure that might benefit both talent and investors who were the group of people I was most focused on at that time. Jody, talk about the ways that BTG supports private equity firms. Sure. I mean, private equity firms are um, both organizations themselves, Mm. but most importantly, they are... um, they oversee the development and you know value creation in all of their portfolio companies. So yeah. a company like BTG, which has this incredible uh, resource of immediately available you know on-demand talent that's independent um, and available very quickly, yeah. is able to come in and work as a partner with private equity firms across their portfolios. So provide mm-hmm. the kind of um, actual implementation of the strategy that the private equity firm has decided is the right way to create value. If it's an M&A strategy, if it's a cost reduction strategy, if it's a new business opportunity strategy, and we're able to come in and provide that talent very rapidly, um, which of course is important for private equity firms because they are moving at a very fast pace and um, obviously support the firm themselves if they have bandwidth needs or subject matter expert needs um, as they develop their own firm. So, it, you know, we play both in the portfolio uh, arena as well as, you know, supporting the firm itself. So, you know, what that really bridges me to is this discussion of talent innovation. And you know what I mean by that, Jody, is whether it's at the Portco level or uh, upon the recommendation of a partner at the PE firm, companies are innovating how they think about talent in so many ways, right? From workplace to workforce to work arrangements, et cetera. Which private equity firms are showing a lot of talent innovation these days? You know, I think what we're seeing is the very big firms um, who have a lot of internal resources devoted to um, what I would call the the operations of their portfolio companies. These are often internal operations groups, internal consulting groups, Um, are the ones, I think, who are first looking at how do we take an idea and a resource like on-demand talent, which is, as Mm -hmm. you know, broad, much broader than BTG. I mean, Upwork has an enormous uh, capacity to help these companies. How do we take this new way of thinking about talent and make it available easily to our portfolio companies? Because we believe as a firm, that that will help them move faster, be more flexible, more nimble. And so the, mm. I would call the, inst- the most innovative PE firms are starting to think about this in an institutional way and making it a part of how they think about developing their investments. And to mm. me, that's the key because I think everybody 
in the early days of um, the marketplace of independent talent, you know, people went to it when they were in a crisis. You know, something went wrong. We don't know what else to do. Why not try this? Many of our early clients, that was the scenario. Yeah. But then they start to understand, and particularly with what's happening in the labor markets today, you know, that this, this resource, this new arrow in their quiver can actually play a bigger role. And yeah. I think it's the, it's the move from this is kind of an interesting, quirky thing we can do occasionally when we have no other options to let's think strategically yeah. about how we utilize this increasingly important population of talent. And I think what will happen um, is as we see, I think we're coming into kind of a perfect storm. Um, yeah. You know, we, we went through COVID where the notion of having remote talent became normalized and people understood um, that a lot of great work could be done in a different manner. Yeah. And what that did, the first thing that did is it opened up the labor market um, globally. You could have talent anywhere um, yeah. do what you need them to do. And so that was kind of the first step. And I think the second step is this incredibly tight talent market where yeah. I, th I think we're seeing two things. Everyone talks about the great resignation. Um, but one of the interesting data points I saw last week was that 23% of people in professions and business services, professionals and business services, um, that the, the number of people resigning in those categories has yeah. gone up 23% from Q4 2019. Wow. So we're seeing a big jump within the great resignation of people leaving in the categories, certainly that BTG focuses on. And yeah. at the same time, you're seeing all kinds of data points that the people who are leaving the workforce are moving in to independent work. And yeah. you see it from, you know, a recent study that said just overall independent workers were up 31 percent um, in 2020. Um, you have Upwork has great data that, you know, people yeah. are not being able to find talent, even though they need, you know, 68 percent of the teams are hiring. You've got, you know, Robert Half coming out and saying 39 percent of the workers are seeing, you know, project work as their next step in their career path. So. Yeah. What you're seeing is this massive shift from, I think, a talent perspective, which I believe will force um, private equity firms who I think are on the cutting edge of needing talent fast yeah. and creating value from talent fast to make it incumbent upon them to understand how to access and utilize and over time be yeah. desirable to yeah. the independent talent community. Jody, um, many private equity firms fundamentally look to improve their portfolio company C-suites. That's just foundational a lot of times. But that replacement uh, takes time. There's a lot of risk there. Talk to me about the interim executive opportunity that's in front of them through BTG. Yes, thanks, Tim. That's a that's a really important point. Um, so, you're absolutely right. Um, C-suite evaluation and change is um, probably 
step one in most uh, private equity playbooks. Mm-hmm. And you know, when there does need to be a change, um, it's a really critical time. And sometimes, you know, the the change is delicate, and uh, search needs to be performed. And you know, I think you know we were acquired by Hydricon Struggles, who um, does a lot of the the permanent search work in the in the private equity community. And yeah. if a search has to be um, confidential, it's much harder. Much yeah. you know, it takes longer. It's harder, more risk. So one of the things that has emerged as a real um, opportunity is if there's an ability to put in an interim executive, and that could be anything from an interim CEO to CFO down to you know a director, if it's um, you know it's a critical role, allows a company to more um, norm- normalize the search to make it mm. not confidential because they can get somebody in who can keep the ball rolling. And also, interestingly enough, it also allows uh, a, port- a portco to figure out what is the right next C-level person. You know, you can try yeah. one flavor, you yeah. know, maybe it's a marketing bent, but <laughs> you may decide you need more of a financial bend. So it gives you information that I think actually improves the long-term decision. So yeah. it, it really frees up, um, frees up the search process and I think ultimately improves the result because you get information about what's working and what's not. Um, and I think it's one of the real um, interesting ways that particularly portfolio companies um, have been using BTG. Our, you know, our PE work has doubled in the last year. Mm. And I think one of the reasons is because of the interest in interim execs. You know, but I, I guess I would say as I really think about the intersection of, you know, what you're doing, what we're doing, and PE, if you think about PE as an engine in general of economic innovation, you know, back mm-hmm. from when, you know, KKR started doing it years ago, you know, they they have innovated on financing structures, they have innovated on, you know, yeah. cost controls, they've innovated on, you know, driving M&A and platform plays, I think they really do have the potential to be the leader in innovating on talent. Um, yeah. And I think it's because they have, they have portfolio companies. So they have a big reach. Yeah. They have a, um, a very clear value proposition when they make investments, they know what they want to do and they just need to be able to implement it as well and as fast as possible. <laughs> and yes, it's hard not to see the the most innovative firms figuring out quickly that this is an important piece of how they need to get that done. Absolutely. Uh, speed, uh, boy, if anybody values speed, it's private equity, um, especially given their charter and how difficult it is to create the kind of alpha uh, that everybody expects. Jody, this has been a fantastic conversation. Um, as usual, uh, you've provided so many things for me to think about. And in this case, I think you've given our listeners a glimpse into all types of innovation across private equity. Thank you so much for being part of this program. Thank you, Tim. There were several insightful themes in that conversation, such as the future favors the flexible, solutions that offer speed to market unlock value 
And then finally, it's time for companies and PE firms to make themselves attractive to the independent talent community of freelancers, contractors, and virtual teams. It's time to make the leap from thinking talent acquisition to fostering the talent access mindset. If you'd like to download our free report on innovations in private equity, which covers a variety of developments over the last year, ranging from technology to deal structure to talent strategy, visit upwork.com front slash pitch book. Until next time, this is Tim Sanders. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Invisible Capital. For show notes and links to relevant reports and articles, visit pitchbook.com slash podcast. I'm Alexander Davis. Until next time. Invisible Capital is a production of PitchBook. Executive produced by Kai Yao. Hosted by Alexander Davis. Additional production and editing support by Jen Germain, Allison Sharoni, Brian Hoyson, Kate Rainey, and Sam Steele. Cover art by Landon Early. Subscribe to Invisible Capital on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information, visit pitchbook.com slash podcast.